everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is the man, the myth, the legend, Michael Walker. How are you doing, you fabulous wildebeest? Oh, marvelous, Mark. Not as, not as well as you look, though. Oh, you're too kind. Also, going blind and senile with age. We're going to be talking about board games this week. We're going to talk about the Eurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the game we reviewed a year ago. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter, or at least Walker is. And then we're going to have our topic. Our topic, as suggested by a listener, thank you very, very much, is we are going to review the topic of -of out-of-print games in episode 54, way back when. In the before times. In the before times. We talked about games that were out of print and needed, uh, needed a reprint. And we are going to revisit the topic, specifically reviewing or rediscovering or rediscussing many of the games mentioned in that topic. I've got a few new ones to toss in to recapitulate. We'll see what happens. So with that in mind, the as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus Walker, what did we review last year? We reviewed a game called Perseverance Castaway Chronicles, part one of four. <laughs> but one, no, part one of two. Consisting of episodes one and two. Have they threatened episodes five and six and seven and eight? No, no, no. Sorry. They've, they've threatened three okay. and four. Well, yes, that, that was successfully crowdfunded not too long ago. Uh, fulfillment will, you know, be, an, be at some point. We have reason to believe that Mind Clash will fulfill on that obligation. Uh, or as we say, the threat. I have difficulty remembering the, uh, uh, a recent game that disappointed me as much as Perseverance did. Yeah, it, I, and it's because they promised so much, and it looked so promising, and the premise was interesting, and the gameplay was subpar. Well, to my mind, it was less about the promise, the specific promise of Perseverance Castaway Chronicles, although, I mean, frankly, dinosaurs are great. Everyone who appreciates Hollenspiel knows this. But it was more the pedigree of the company. They'd, they'd been going from strength to strength. This was the game that they published immediately after Cerebri the Inside World, which was not only an excellent design, but a singularly iconoclastic one in a lot of ways. You know, heavy Euros, in my estimation, have been getting staler and staler for a long time. And, and to my mind, it was pretty much a splotter and mind clash that were doing it right. And then there was a thing, and it just kind of happened, and... It made me sad. But they, they came back. <laughs> You're right. They did come back. They did come back with Voidfall. So I guess Voidfall can make us forgive them for Perseverance Castaway Chronicles. Anyway, that is the game we reviewed last year. We haven't played it since. Uh, we no, have, nor had a will. will nor had a will to. Yeah. Uh, no one has asked for it. No one has really thought. Like, it's just pff, gone. That is Perseverance Castaway Chronicles, Episodes 1 and 2 by Richard Amann, Thomas van der Ginste, Victor Peter, Wolf Plunka, and David Tschertze, published by Mind Clash Games in 2022. Now, on to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Well, more precisely, this is a game we played two weeks ago, Mark. We both forgot to talk about it. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's telling or what. This is a game called Rats of Wistar. This is designed by Simone Luciani and Daniello Saba. And they are the same designers that gave us Anunnaki, Dawn of the Gods. So we were very curious on what Rats of Wistar would bring to us. And I very much, this is put out by Cranio Creations. I did enjoy it. it. had sort of a rondel system where you're... Not really. Well, it would turn. <laughs> yeah, everything. It was a worker placement system whereby the worker actions would be slightly different from round on round in a turny way. And where you had your, your workers place would be like the power of that section of actions. And then you'd place your leader out there in different areas and they'd give you a bonus action on top of the action for that section. And you were sort of 
adventuring through the farmhouse, getting bonuses. You were uh, burrowing into your little home to make more beds and more room for your uh, rats. You're creating these uh, inventions. I am very much looking forward to trying it again. There wasn't anything that I hated. <laughs> wow. Faint well, I'm, I'm just saying nothing like super stood out. You, there was no moment where he went, oh, that's like, that's right. Really cool and interesting. Like there's a cool hook, you know, yeah. the, the, the sort of worker power thing was, you know, kind of interesting, but you know, we've seen that done many times before. And the fact that you actually have to build the board every time you play it, it's got this big turning bit that, that won't fit in the box if it's still connected to yes, the board. The, the dial has to be reassembled every time with the screw. Yes. Which, Which is interesting. Weird. A little weird, yeah. I share very much your ambivalence and your willingness to play again. Honestly, this was the first time I'd played a design by Simone Luciani. Again, it was co-designed with Danny Losabia, where I felt a similar vibe to what I often feel and I often complain about games designed by Vladimir Suki. Which is to say, this is very competently designed, no obvious problems, uh, a recombination of a variety of euro things we've seen a million times before, but definitely better than the common dreck that you might find in an undifferentiated mass of Alsorans. And I'm not sure I desperately need to ever play this again. I I, I certainly would, you know, very much in the same way that I, I probably would play any Suki that you put in front of me, um, especially if there wasn't anything in particular that I wanted to play. But I, 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 I'm beginning to worry that Simone Luciani may be on a bit of a downturn in terms of his career. The past couple designs of his, again, some uh, two of them co-designed by Daniel Sabia, haven't really stood out in some of the ways that his earlier works have, certainly when compared to Marco Polo and Barrage. And ultimately, I also feel that Rats of Wistar didn't play to its strengths, because I think you're underselling the theme considerably. These are sapient rats that are exploring a presumably abandoned human domicile, engaging in adventures like... Uh, eluding a cat, fighting, fighting the fighting the chicken, fighting the chicken, uh, stealing cheese from the, the 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 cellar, and they're cobbling together these really cool inventions that are all on a rat scale from discarded detritus of human civilization. And I wish that the game did more of that. In Rats of Wistar, the the funnest parts were just exploring the house and finding new things and pushing the horizon of what was available there. But that was only a very, very small part of the game. Effectively, in Rats of Wistar, much of what you're doing is a tableau builder. You're putting out cards, you're, you're gathering the resources to put out cards, which give you some effect that might help you put up more cards or score at the end of the game, etc., etc. And although the cards were charming, I felt the, the overall resource manipulation wasn't particularly its strongest suit, Not certainly not thematically. And so I wish it had leaned more and given us more opportunities to go explore the house. I couldn't help but notice that given the opportunity in the worker placement sections of every round, we jumped on those first. And I think part of that was just because it was it was so neat and cute. And yeah, there were benefits. I'm not saying it was strategically disadvantageous or you know possibly under or overbalanced, but you know, it was telling that, that when it came time to do that, that's what we gravitated towards. And there's some interesting decisions there because you had limited number of places in your burrows and you had to use those places for either uh people that you'd find inside the house that would give you benefits or places to put more workers so it's a sort of like balance that you had to decide how which strengths you're going to go to yeah ultimately i was a little bit disappointed as well by the fact that again in in very common euro fashion uh, we all pretty much maxed out on a number of the areas. Like again, when when you first set it up, there are there's the issue of making beds for workers and 
clearing out room in your underground dwelling for more rats, be they your workers or foreign workers. I was like, oh, you know, there might be some room for specialization here or whatever. Now, we all we all more or less ended up in the same place. A smattering of cards, a bit of exploration, and a mostly cleared out cellar. And so I think that contributed a little bit to my sense of, of sameness. Yeah, I'd happily play again. But honestly, I think it's mostly by virtue of the charm and not so much because of the underlying design quality that heretofore I have come to associate with uh, Simone Luciani in particular. I mean, same. honestly, I'm in a similar place with Anunnaki. I, I, I kind of want to try it again, but I haven't really been driven to. Not by virtue of the same reasons, but overall in terms of the same kind of mixture of ambivalence and optimism. Agreed. That was Rats of Wistar, designed by Simone Luciani and Daniel Sabia, published by Cranio Creations. I get to play Voidfall again. There has been a protracted period of my attempting to get Voidfall to the table and not succeeding, a period of my life that I am now going to call Voidfail. And Voidfail came to an end this week, and I actually introduced it to the two Louis. We set up an opportunity whereby we could leave Voidfall on the table over the course of two sessions. We played the first session. We're going to be finishing the game next week. And this was partially because we needed to A, set up the game, and B, explain the game. But sure enough, despite the fact that the two Louis have, you know, varying degrees of rules comprehension between the two of them, and probably less enthusiasm for heavy games than we do, they were nonetheless enthusiastic about the theme and giving it a try based on our uh, Huey and and myself enthusing about its quality, they... The same rules explanation pattern that we've noticed during the review popped up. It'd be like, okay, here's how this card works. This takes forever to explain. Okay, next action card. This one's a little bit easier. And then by the third or fourth action card, they're like, oh, yeah, I know how this works. And <laughs> shockingly enough, uh, despite the wait, once again, once Voidfall gets rolling, the rules questions drop to practically nothing. It's not that they remember what you told them at the beginning of the 45-minute long rules explanation. It's that the iconography is sufficiently well done that you can connect everything together. And, and the system hangs together shockingly well. So I was always very pleased, pleased to go back to Voidfall. Always very pleased to see a new tableau of technologies, a new setup on the map. Uh, the subtle differences that emerge from the different scenarios. Uh, suffice to say, my enthusiasm has not waned a bit. And I'm very, very much looking forward to concluding the session next week. That is Voidfall by Nigel Buckle and David Zertze, published by Mind Clash Games this year. We streamed a game called Fayum because we love Fayum, and it got a new expansion called Privileges. This is a Friedman Freeze game put out by, you guessed it, 2F Spiel. And this is, uh, its sort of hook is managing your hand and or your deck because you're going to be playing the cards out of your hand and then at a certain time, you can take an income phase, which you're going to get some money to ba based on how many cards you have left in your hand. And then you only get to take the top three cards off of your discard pile, paying money for more. So the order in which you play the cards, which ones you get to the bottom of your discard pile because you don't want them anymore. And you're constantly getting an influx of new cards and deciding how to to work all this with these very intricate and interesting combinations that arise on the board because you're putting out all sorts of different buildings and they never belong to anyone. They're like sort of general use and you're putting out workers and uh, during income phase, some of them come off. So you try to use them while you can or deciding not to put any more out because you don't want other people to be able to use them. Overall, love fam. The expansion is uh, very interesting as well. I wish they just added more cards, but then I can see how it would just add to the game because 
uh, you play right to the bottom of the deck. So unfortunately, you have to take out a bunch of cards that they say at the beginning, particular cards. Ah. So, you know, you could just sort of bag them up and put them to the side while you play the expansion until you don't want to play the expansion anymore. Mm. What the expansion adds are, so there's two new cards they introduce. You have uh, instant effects and you have ongoing effects. So you every time you buy one of those cards, they immediately go like a sort of a sidebar. And you can discard the instant effects whenever you want and you get whatever it says. And the ongoing effects give you like sort of abilities, like bonuses to other stuff. Privileges are, even. Yeah, pri- like, yeah, sort of like that. Okay. I don't know why that would fit into this particular expansion, but sure. When the game was finished, that was when I thought, I think we could have utilized those cards a bit better. Because every time someone got an instant card, they just immediately discarded and got the bonus. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they had waited... Because it also has a very sort of interesting end game mechanic. Is like when the main deck runs out, you have a sidebar of about 16 cards. And in that 16 cards, there are four major disasters. And then the moment that those major, all four come out into the sidebar, you are no longer allowed to take the sort of income action that gets you more cards. Now you have to now deal with cards that are in your hand and any cards that you buy. And I feel as though if we had waited for that moment, if people had kept all their one-time cards and then used, you know, those benefits then, I think they would have had a little bit more impact on the game. Hmm. Because a lot of them were just like free resources and stuff like that. And being able to get those resources, you know, then would be much more beneficial. You're also, I think, burying the lead because in addition to playing with the Privileges expansion, your copy of FAM came with the most important modification to perhaps any board game ever. And that is... Googly eyes on the crocodiles. Googly eyes on the crocodiles. If you're at all curious, you can find a picture on the Facebook page of So Very Wrong About Games. At first, you might feel that it's not a big deal until you see it, <laughs> until you see them. Yeah. And then and then you realize that you'll not be able to play any other way again. <laughs> and then wonder why you've ever played any other way before. It's, it, it is the definitive way to play FAM, that is for certain. They are, they are <laughs> in fact, gorgeous. So all things being equal, I know it's early days. You've played FAM without the expansion far more than you have with. But if you had the option, novelty excluded, which way do you think you might prefer? I'd still play with the, I think I'd play with the expansion. I see. Because the cards that came, you know, the cards that were eliminated barely felt which ones they were or, or, Ah. you know, what they did. And this leads into a whole new, like I've already sort of hinted at, a whole new different way that you can sort of play the game. Unfortunately, it still takes a while to play, but such is the factor. Such is the factor? All right. So that's Fam Privileges by Friedman Fries. I get to play Horizon Wars Midnight Dark. This is an independent tabletop miniatures war game designed by Roby Jenkins, my favorite designer of such games, published by Precinct Omega Publishing. After a considerable delay, this is the follow-up to both Horizon Wars Infinite Dark, which was the spaceship game, and Horizon Wars Zero Dark, which is the 28mm Spec Ops game. Midnight Dark is a redevelopment of Horizon Wars Simpliciter, originally published by Osprey in 2020, which is a combined arm science fiction mech game. You know, when you, if you don't want to confuse anyone, yeah. make sure you name all your games almost exactly the same. That way there leads to no confusion whatsoever. It's very similar to the Professions of the Place Name series. Very, very good at ident- making an identifiable brand. Very bad at differentiating which is which. I can barely keep them straight in my head, but, you know, then again, I do this as a professional walker. Anybody I play with has no ability to remember what the game is called because it's just a, a, a soup of words at that point. Anyway, that having been said, Horizon Wars Midnight Dark is, as I say, a redevelopment of already a very, very solid uh, combined arms 
sci-fi miniatures war game. And for the most part, the changes to the system and the changes to the scenario are, I think, 100% for the better. The way that units are recruited is much simpler. The way that units are customized is much simpler. One of the things that's been consistent across the designs of Roby Jenkins, which I very much appreciate, is that he doesn't do things like, well, what kind of specific weapon are you kitting out your unit with? It's like, well, no, I don't really care whether this is an autocannon or a rocket launcher. You're going to design for effect. And so do you want to boost its firepower? Do you want to boost its ability to do things short range versus long range? Do you want to do the other things? Rather than having to compare things in minutia, like I got used to it for in, for infinity, but it's definitely daunting for a new player. It's like, okay, well, what's the difference between a combi rifle and a rifle simpliciter versus a shotgun versus a machine? It's a whole thing. Especially since in those weapon tables, often it's just, you know, that one crucial number buried somewhere. Walkers give me the nod of recognition. Oh, yeah, it's the, it's the, the, Warhammer. War, the Warhammer nod. It's Precisely. like, oh, oh, this one is, is minus one armor as opposed to, you know, everything else is yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly the same. Exactly. Point. So in, in all the Horizon Wars games, you don't really mess with stuff like that. You have pretty much all the customization you could want, uh, but none of the uh, you, you're never obliged to engage in more customization than you desire. If you want your heavy tank to be stock, your heavy tank can be stock. On the other hand, if you want it to be a mobile artillery center with a command focus and a whole bunch of other upgrades, you can do that too. Anyway, I very much appreciate that. And as I've commented uh, from previous comments of playing Horizon Wars, I really didn't like the way the scenarios worked and the way that mustering worked. It is much, much better in Horizon Wars Midnight Dark. Played co-op, though, partially by virtue of the fact that Horizon Wars Zero Dark the Spec Ops version uh, in the same universe, uh, which is 28 mil game rather than, than sort of 12 mil, 5 to 12 mil combined arms, is pretty much designed chiefly for solo and co-op. Midnight Dark is not. Uh, it, it very much seems like the primary focus is on PvP and the solo rules were added kind of as an afterthought. I say afterthought, it's still better, more fleshed out than a lot of solo designs, whether it's for miniatures war games or even for a lot of Euro games. But nonetheless, some of the things don't make a heck of a lot of sense. For example, the uh, some upgrades just don't make any sense in the context of co-op versus uh, PvP. Uh, some upgrades actually hinder you. And it is also the case, and this is just an example of some of the different perspectives that I bring to the table as a board gamer primarily, as opposed to a miniatures war gamer. There is no attempt to balance the force you're playing against by virtue of how many upgrades you've taken. So, for example, one of the things you can do to a unit, again, again this is part of the great elements of customization that you're going to find in a Horizon Wars game, but in Midnight Dark, you can attach a hero to a given unit. It's like, well, amongst the tank crew, there's a hero, or in that infantry squad, there's a hero, or the mech pilot is a hero. And that allows you to do a variety of things, cool toys, a little bit more customization, etc. This costs points that you then obviously have to decrease from your overall force pool. But when you're playing solo or co-op, you don't care how many points you bring to the table, you care how much presence you bring to the table. So there's nothing stopping you at all, and there's no discouragement whatsoever from making putting a hero in every unit, loading them up with all manner of, of upgrades. Now, the reason why this is a difference in perspective is because if you raise these things to a lot of tabletop miniatures wargamers, the designer, Roby Jenkins, among them, is you will then get some response along the lines of, well, if you want to cheat at a solo game... There's nothing stopping you, but why would you do that? To which the answer is, the reason why I might be inclined to do that is because I expect the designer to give me a solid framework that is not open to exploits or even give me the temptation to lead into exploits and some degree of controls and balances. I mean, after all, if you take that perspective, the, well, if you really want to cheat to the logical extreme, 
Why bother telling me at all what forces I can I can fight against? The reason why is because it's helpful for the designer to do some work to help me out, to guide me so that I'm going to have a re, uh, some sort of engagement that fits the design ambits that the designer brings to the table. If I wanted to chase my own design ambits, i design my own system. But yes. I don't want to. That's why I pay other people to do it. Tell me the experience I'm supposed to have here. More or less. Like, obviously, the, you know, the, there's some wiggle room, but... You can take either of these positions to a logical extreme. Anyway, I personally feel that the solo system and the co-op system in Midnight Dark is underbaked, especially when compared to the systems in both Infinite Dark and especially that of Zero Dark. So, uh, the person I played with was very, very keen on the system, not so keen on the, the co-op element, and I can completely understand that. And so next time we play, we are going to play versus. We're going to kit out a force and, and try to smash each other to bits. And I'm very much looking forward to that. I've been wanting to play Midnight Dark for a long time. It's been in development for a while. I, I support Ruby Jenkins on Patreon. I did pay for the rule set, although this is technically a review copy because I did play with terrain that the designer very, very kindly sent me after I lost a whole bunch of miniatures terrain in my flood. So thank you for that. So I'm going to call this a review copy effectively because anytime I play Midnight Dark, it's going to be with terrain sent to me by the designer. So I'm a big fan of all the works of Roby Jenkins, and I, I highly, highly, highly recommend his stuff. But Midnight Dark, I think, for me is going to be a PvP experience as opposed to the flexibility offered by Infinite Dark and Zero Dark. Uh, if you're looking for a way to get in, uh, I would... If it, It's like everything else. What scale appeals to you? What setting appeals to you? What do you have lying around? Uh, but my favorite setting is definitely uh, Horizon Wars Zero Dark. I think the solo system and the co-op system, the AI, is, is is borderline genius, and it is always led to a good time and uh, a system that leads to exploits in a fun, tactical way, rather than a sort of heavily gamified, I'm holding the hand of the game system so that it can get to where I want it to go kind of way. So that's Horizon Wars Midnight Dark, designed by Roby Jenkins, published by his own label, Precinct Omega Publishing. If you're at all curious about indie tabletop miniatures war games, you can find a whole bunch of them on War Game Vault. That's where I buy all my PDFs and indeed all my uh, books of that ilk. I have been out of the quote-unquote big-name miniatures companies, if you want to even call Corvus Belly a big name for quite some years, just by virtue of the fact that I, I'm not interested in keeping up with those kinds of systems anymore. But I absolutely recommend the indies. There are tons of great ones. It is worth a shot. And that is Zero Dark Horizon Sunset. <laughs> Close. Mark and I got to play a game that will be out eventually called Burned. This is designed by John Moffat and put out by Stone Circle Games. And it is a very interesting small deck card game where you put out a bunch of locations, which are cards. One person is sort of an assassin spy hiding from... A burned asset. A burned asset that is hiding from the director and his henchmen. So he has a group of people that are fanning out or or grouping up at locations where he thinks that the, the, the burned asset is. And the burned asset is using all sorts of different items and abilities to to get away. If you know if he runs, he reveals sort of where he is. If they run, some of his weapons work better. It was a very interesting, very fun, very easy to learn sort of hidden movement game. Very tight, very fast. And the fascinating sort of trade-offs emerged very quickly after the first turns. It's, it's one of those situations where, speaking personally at least, you set up the game, I'm like, I don't really know how this is going to work. Not that I thought that it wasn't going to work at all, I just didn't have a sense of how the ebb and flow was going to function. But it's a game of cat and mouse, where you're never really sure which one's the cat and which one's the mouse, because both factions are deadly in their own way. 
And uh, it, it really turned the hidden movement formula on its head. Normally in hidden movement games, it's very, very clear who can bring the offensive power to bear, and it's a question of being found. And in this case, I was playing as the agency, and so nominally the location of all my uh, agents is face up, but the location of where they are is actually less relevant because it's about how and when the burned asset is cornered, if that makes any sense. In a lot of other hidden movement games, cornering the, the person you're trying to corner, that's what you're supposed to do. That's just what it is. But in the context of burned, there were actually a lot of trade-offs involved because if I cornered them in the wrong way, it could be very, very, very disadvantageous. Uh, varying shades of Fury of Dracula in that sense. Because in Fury of Dracula, not a game I enjoy, but at least in the cat-and-mouth scenario, you had to corner Dracula in the right way in order to get it to work. Uh, Burned, however, has uh, a number of salient advantages over Fury of Dracula. For one thing, it's like 20 minutes rather than, than five hours. Yes. And there's no card you get to play in Burned that just says, oh, I'm just going to reset the entire board. Yes. <laughs> so this is a prototype that was sent to us by Stone Circle Games. There's not a hard and fast publication date yet. Uh, John Moffat has, is also the designer of a game that was sent to us under the name Pax Ragnarok. And uh, my understanding that the current working title is going to be Blood and Mead, which is slightly more appropriate given that it's not really a Pax game. Anyway, Stone Circle Games is a very interesting publisher, and I, I've, I found both of these designs by John Moffat fascinating. Uh, Burned was really, really tight and engaging for, given its, its overall... Grit. Grit, exactly. Hardly any... Uh, lots of surprising reveals, and as I say, the who was who was hunting and who was the hunted. Yeah, I had this like interesting turn where you had right. I think you had five henchmen, one of which was the director, and I was just the single asset hiding. And then when you lost a couple, it was sort of like this turn exactly where, where it's like, oh no, it's like, I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah, I might not be able to wound you enough before you take out the director. I, yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah, and you normally don't have an arc in games of 20 to 30 minutes. And so Burned was highly enjoyable. I'm looking forward to trying again because there's a whole bunch of different uh, roles that you can pick. There's a whole bunch of different map setups you can have, a whole bunch of different equipment kits that the Burned Asset could have. And I'm hoping that they're all as solid as the, the, the ones that we tried. That is Burned by John Moffat and Stone Circle Games, yet to be published. This is a review prototype sent to us by the publisher. We have continued our campaign of My Island. Yet more developments in My Island. That we can't talk about. That we can't really talk. Well, that we shouldn't really talk about. No. We don't. We don't want to spoil anybody. And I, I, I I'll just stress now. It, it in the initial stage of my island, it was perhaps a little straightforward, a little bit rote, certainly by Walker's perspective. Then the scoring options kind of blew up, not in an overwhelming way, but in a way that suddenly every single tile placement became agonizing because every placement was foreclosing the opportunity to score something else. Now we're at the point where on top of that, we're in situations where we might not even be scoring our campaign advancement by winning individual sessions. The level of trade-off has now permeated such that there was an instance in, a, in one of the chapters that we played uh, uh, in this cycle where I didn't want to win. I was aggressively avoiding scoring points because I knew that my overall campaign advance would be better served by doing other things. And that level of trade-off, that level of internalizing the legacy trade-off was, uh, I, I was unexpected for, for that kind of realization. It was, I was, you know, three or four turns into the chapter and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> if I, if I try to get points in this game, I'm actually not going to be advancing my overall interests. Okay. 
And so I just went and did the other things. It's not that I tanked the game. It's just that I, I re-internalized a different way to maximize my yeah, position there, in my island. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that every chapter has three games. And there was a goal that we had to achieve at the end of these three games. And you felt as though you were just better off succeeding in that goal in the first game as opposed to, like, spreading it out and, and giving yourself, like, a handicap throughout three games. Right. Well, well, that was my position. I'm not sure that that wouldn't necessarily be reversed for other people. Like, they might decide in the first of the three games to sacrifice that and figure that they could get it done. Because we, we, we got it done in roughly 1.3-ish games, right? Or averaged across. I got it done entirely in my first session. Again, I was pursuing other other conditions. And other people got it done uh, at some point during the second session, usually relatively early on. Knowing that... And internalizing those pressures, it might have made sense for someone to do it on the back end rather than on the front end. And again, those kinds of trade-offs, Knizia is the master of trade-offs, and that's one of the reasons why his games are so good. But to have internalized trade-offs even past the individual scoring conditions, but all to the level of maybe I don't want to win this one at all, is really, really interesting. And I, you know, we're now 18 games into our campaign of my island. The and- story ramped a little bit in this in this particular chapter yeah i think there was like a sort of a an, an interlude like, like i said like you know at yep. the end of a season yep you come back and it's like suddenly 10 years later and you're like where did all my cool you know characters that i enjoy are and no it's like no there's all these new characters now sure and you're like oh i don't like these new people until like the end of the first episode and you're like who are those old characters these new characters <laughs> are the biz bombity yeah. it was jarring i had to check to confirm that i hadn't skipped an envelope <laughs> yes <laughs> but anyway we are continuing our, our campaign of my island chip the third is is uh, continuously asking us to push forward. And so, I mean, at this rate, we'll, that will be finished uh, before too long. It's true. And that is My Island by Reiner Knizia and Cosmos. I mean, and just to, just to emphasize, because you know, we haven't explicitly said this, uh, I'm still very, very much enjoying the campaign. And I'd have to say that My Island has more legs than nine of the past ten campaign games we've tried, where it's more just been like, ugh, that was okay, but do I really want to keep going with more? <laughs> Because it's very much different every game, which is nice, as opposed uh, to other campaign games. I know about every just... game, chapter by chapter. Yes, cha- different. yes, different chapters are different. Yes, Whereas... it was, and indeed, it was this chapter in my island where I really felt like it was different from game to game again because I was internalizing those different scoring pressures, the different horizons about what victory looks like in a given session. My island. Mark and I also returned to Trickshot Second Edition. This is designed by. Artie Nichiparov and published by Wolf Designer. And this is probably one of the best sports games that I've played. It gives you the very much the feel of Blood Bowl, but with half the figures on a side, half the time it takes to play. Half the time. Blood well, Bowl is reliably like three hours, true, dude. Sorry, quarter of the time <laughs> it takes to play. And much easier to teach, much easier to learn. It is this very push your luck, like like intense, the way it does push your luck is so good. Intense push your luck. You can do as many actions as you want. Every time you do an action, you add another die to your pool. Dice in your pool are bad. <laughs> yep. So turn off, turnovers, much like Blood Bowl, but still, I love every part of it. That is Trick Shot 2nd Edition. So the way 2nd Edition was published, previously we had played sort of a hybrid with 2nd Edition rules, but a lot of 1st Edition components. The second edition streamlines a lot of the slightly more complicated actions like slap shots. and Now it's much, much simpler. 
the action system has been harmonized to a great degree, and the special powers have been altered such that they are now no longer things that you exhaust and constantly rotate in a way that was a little dizzying. Satisfying, but a little dizzying. But now it's the case that every team has special powers for each of the positions. And that was really, really interesting, I found. And I really have, I, I just have to say, as a publisher goes, Wolf Designer does second editions, arguably, I think, the best. Because the way they brought both Warpgate and Trickshot, both games that in the first edition that I thought were really quite excellent, into the superior second editions, was here's a pack of cards. And it keeps the price down, it keeps things accessible and approachable. And the only time they didn't do that was with Guards of Atlantis, because an upgrade pack would have been impossible in that context. It would not have just been a pack of cards because it was changed the boards, they changed the fundamental way, they changed the scale of the figures for one thing. That they probably could have chosen not to do had they really wanted to, but whatever. And so what that does is it builds up credibility. Uh, many publishers, if they say, look, we, we, we couldn't really do an upgrade, we have to just publish an entirely new edition, so buy the game again. Uh, a lot of publishers just do not have any credibility. But Wolf Designer completely has credibility because they've clearly made the effort to make second editions as economically feasible as possible. And so independently of the fact that I think that the gameplay changes are really, really well done, I just like the publishing model. And as far as reliability of designers goes, Archim Nichiparov is, is one of the best currently working because every game he's designed, I thought, I thought has been excellent. And I'm fascinated to see his continued output and Trickshot second edition is great. It's I, I think it's my second favorite push your luck game after raw, which, you know, is high praise. And it's like you, it's my favorite sports ball game. And the fact that it is a tactical spatial puzzle on top of all that. I mean, it's almost like a positional abstract at times. Yeah. Much like, like much like Bud Bowl, there's like tackle zones and where you're, where you want your, uh, puck, future puck handlers to be, yep. your present puck handlers to be, where you think your goalie should be positioned, your sort of lanes, because every time you move, they must be in straight lines. Everything has to be in a straight oh, line. That's so that's, good. that's why it feels like a spatial puzzle to me. If you could move in a more flexible way, I don't think Trickshot would work. It's designed around these limitations, and they may seem arbitrary, and thematically they're a little bit dodgy, but who cares? Because it works so well in the context of gameplay. And so often it's the case that you look down and figure, oh, if only this dude were one square over. And indeed, that part dovetails with the push your luck so well, because one of the possible consequences of rolling all these dice is giving your opponent reaction moves. And there are these situations where it's like, well, if I, I can pull this off if, if he doesn't get any reaction moves, but I don't have any re-rolls left and ah, crap. Yeah, it's like that one game we played where I just I looked down at the board. It's like I've bishoped my whole team. My <laughs> yeah. my my puck handler was on on one set of diagonals, yep. and the rest of my team was on another set. Yep. And therefore, you have to take two moves to get one player back on the set. I was just it's so good. Yeah, massive fans of Trickshot. Even more massive fan of Trickshot Second Edition. Artem Nichiporov, Wolf Designer. The Second Edition was published this year. I got to play something that I'd been meaning to try for quite some time, or at least it feels like an eternity. It feels like, you know, the march between Paris and Moscow, even though it's only been several months. This was pointed out to me by a listener who observed that there is a Grand Strategic Napoleonic, and at that point, honestly, the moment anyone says Grand Strategic Napoleonic, I enter a sort of fugue, and I, I, I lose consciousness, and sometimes I, I wake up marching to Berlin and with my wallet considerably lighter. Anyway, this was Napoleon's Conquests, designed by Bruno Lamotte and published by Fellowship of Simulations, which is a French wargame publisher. And this is a worker placement, five-player, grand strategic Napoleonic wargame. 
or at least it doesn't really feel like much of a war game, but it's it's kind of modeled on a lot of the conventions that other multiplayer war games have. And I've got a number of thoughts about it. I think it gets a lot of things right. The core dynamic of card play and worker placement is done really, really quite interestingly. Cards are multifunction. They can advance you on various tracks that are very, very important and or have various effects. In order to trigger a card, you need to place an advisor in a specific space, which will give you various benefits. So you might be in a position where you desperately need money or more cards, but the cards that you wish to play don't necessarily dovetail with those plans. And that's where some of the trade-off goes. I will also say that in terms of compared to a lot of other grand strategic games, be they Napoleonic or otherwise, they get a lot of things right in terms of streamlining some elements that are consistently thorny. Like, for example, two games that I think are, are utterly brilliant, Swords Around the Throne, which was a uh, Renault Verlac two-player grand strategic uh, Napoleonic war game, and Conquest and Consequence, and Triumph and Tragedy, both by Craig Bazink, there are all these things about, you know, violations of neutrality and whether something is a vassal state or a client state or an allied minor or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those things, albeit historically evocative, can get dizzyingly complicated. And I was very, very enthusiastic to, to remark to myself upon the very first turn of Napoleon's Conquests that it may not be the most historically accurate, but in the game of this weight, it makes perfect sense that I should be able to march through the Latvian states uh, on my way to various other places and not have to worry about a whole bunch of other sub-rules and nested conditionals about the overall diplomatic state of things. So sometimes I like that level of grit. Sometimes I'm happy to have this level of detail. Well, I had it in, in a little bit. I understand that historical players really need this diplomacy phase, but and I think that there's a, not enough streamlined, simple games out there. So I don't mind that this has this sort of weird, mm. convoluted diplomacy where, yes. you know, some of us are going to be allied now and, and then no, France is going to immediately, you know, make that all completely null and void. So everything you spent is now wasted. And, and now France is going to move your troops against your, what were once your allies. Yep. And so it's a lot. It is. That part is, is, is pretty thorny, yes. It's pretty thorny and pretty fiddly on, on a game that's already kind of heavy, mm -hmm. but works very well. But anyway, I love the part where there are a lot of spaces give you cards and the cards backs are all different. The backs are colored to what they have benefits for. So if you want a financial card, a good financial card will be yellow. So you can look at the deck and you say, well, I'm going to be first to draw. If I go to the space and I can see that the top card's yellow, I can go there and I know I'm going to get that yellow card that will give me financial help. I love that sort of mechanic. The part about Napoleon's conquest that gives me the most pause actually is the victory conditions. It's been a while since I've played, and I associate this primarily with Volca Runke's designs. It's one of the reasons why I don't really like the coin games. You can have a relatively complicated game, but if you're going to have anywhere that's going to be clean and simple, I want it to be the victory conditions. I don't want it to be a whole bunch of conditionals. Like, well, okay, a strategic victory is what happens if you have tea time on a Tuesday with the following kinds of doilies, so long as the cakes are not shortbread. And, a and if you have strawberry victory, jam, it's right out. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. A tactical victory, on the other hand, is tea on a day that is not a weekend, except for a long weekend, you know, just et cetera, et cetera. And consequently, you know, I explained all the rules, and there were a fair number of rules. It's, 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 it's a heavy-ish game, not by the standards of war games, but definitely when compared to a lot of Euros. And then the victory conditions were like, I can't internalize this. And that was the rules explainer. And so I, I, I had a gist, I had a vague sense 
And, and the fact that there's two different ones. It's not only yeah. victory conditions for everybody, it's victory conditions for the coalition and then a whole different set of victory conditions for France. Yes, and strategic and tactical, yes. two different versions. And a third set, if neither of those are obtained, because then you go to victory points, and I'm particularly concerned about the victory points because it really seems, this is theory crafting, and after one short game of Napoleon's Conquest, short meaning three hours, the, the, the full campaign game would probably be four to five, it seems as though France is destined to win if none of the other victory conditions get met because France gets to score on the more or less the same criteria as all the miners do, but with an army that's three times as big and with three times as many finances and twice as many cards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, you're competing on a theoretical level playing field, <laughs> but I think if the game goes the distance, France is almost guaranteed a, a victory for no other reason than they get three points per military victory. And it's not hard for France to get military victories. It's kind of their thing. It's what they do. And so, uh, you know, Somewhat wonky victory conditions are not new in the realm of historical war games. I mean, hell, it's not even new in the context of war games generally more broadly. It's one of the things that I talked about in the context of Horizon Wars, a game I nonetheless would gla gladly play. Uh, but it is one of my big concerns. A lot of people, myself included for what it's worth, left the table curious to see more. Would be curious to see uh, possibly the long game. I don't know. The short game also introduces some of the constraints. You know, you really have to know where you're going, which is a shame. It's good if the short game is amenable for introductory purposes, but less so when you really have to know exactly how your three rounds are going to play out. So suffice to say, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a war game, a historical war game published by a small indie publisher. And so it's got a lot of the rough edges you associate with that kind of thing. Nonetheless, as far as multiplayer grand strategic Napoleonic war games go, uh, it is by far the simplest I've ever <laughs> played, and it is remarkably successful at evoking a lot of historicity. You know, the military system is very clean. It's very simple. You get overruns and refusing battle without a whole bunch of weird stuff. The fight rules were transparent. Everyone knew how fighting worked. Nobody engaged in battles and and had consequences that were totally unprepared. It was mostly at the beginning and at the end where we were like, how does victory conditions work? I'm like, eh. It's like, ah, forget it. We'll just we'll just try to march on Paris and see how far we can get, which and is fine. On the subject of marching, the whole movement system was very well done as well. Oh, you're right. You purchase movement points. You don't worry about supply. You don't worry about supply lines. You don't worry about any about foraging or anything like that. What you do is you purchase movement cubes and you use those to move your armies around. Yeah, I thought that was really well done. A lot to recommend it. I mean, look, if if people are inclined, I would very much like to try it again. I was I was super keen to try it the first time. And who knows? It's possible that with another play, some of the, as you say, fiddliness, or I would say thorny bits, the rough edges, might become more transparent. Tough to tell. But it at least shows promise and is certainly interesting. And I'm very, very glad to have tried it, especially given my interest in the historical period. And that is Napoleon's Conquests by Bruno Lamat and Fellowship of Simulations. So Butterfly Benai got Splendor Duel back to the table. This is a two-player-only version of Splendor. This is designed by Mark Andre and Bruno Cathala, put out by Space Cowboys. Instead of just sort of buying any gems you want that you like you do in Splendor, you there's this sort of spiraling grid where you can take groups of three or or you know whatever you want from that but they have to be sort of connected and depending on how you take them you might get these scrolls that give you uh bonus tokens that you get to take later and then the rest plays out very much like splendor and it works great for two players it's great great easy to teach simple to learn and if you like splendor at all and play it two player a lot i would suggest this in a heartbeat splendor duel 
And lastly, for me, Mark and I got Federation back to the table. We very much enjoyed our first play, and I think we enjoyed our second play just as much. You have these four workers that you're putting out on the board, and you're either putting them out as sort of voting power or playing power, I guess. I'm not sure even how to, how to, to differentiate them, but they're going on different sides of the Senate, different rows of the Senate. There are all these different areas of the board that you're advancing on from going into the Senate. Lots going on. Very interesting sort of, you know, give and take seeing which, what are the victory conditions for that particular round and whether you want to invest in that or you want to go, you know, for invest in end game points. It has this whole sort of, what's, what do they call it? Uh, uh, goal, the major projects. Major projects. Yes. And, it, and they're, it's very weird. It is very strange. Because. I have my concerns. You don't get any benefit for advancing on these projects. Well, you do and you don't. At the very end of the game, if they're successful, you will score, but so will everybody else. So effectively what they are is a series of area majority scoring criteria that will trigger at the end of the game if they have been successfully funded as major projects. We've played two games of Federation, and in neither game was anything funded. And in both games, I think only one ever got close. And many of them just never even got started. And so I wonder what the, the, the dynamics are, because as Walker was alluding to, investing your energies in making sure that the scoring condition will trigger does not help you in terms of competing for that scoring condition. So if Walker devotes a tremendous amount of effort, or if a couple people devote a tremendous amount of effort, to make sure that the major project for Blue is, is funded, I can just go and activate blue a whole bunch of times. And so I can benefit from their labor and be like, okay, well, thanks guys. You triggered the scoring condition. And now I get all these points. That's one of the reasons why nobody bothers. There was a, there was a couple of periods during the early rounds where we're like, oh, well, let's see what happens. And then it's like, oh, by the mid game rolls around, I'm no longer in the lead in these conditions. Forget that. I'm not going to bother yeah. funding this thing. Which is very disappointing because the rest of the game is so solid, interesting, engaging. Yeah. And, and full the, of lots of great trade-offs. Yeah. And that, just is I like this is one of the ones where I had to go over the go back to the rules and say, yes. oh, there's something we're missing. It's and, as though we were making a mistake. Yeah. Frequently in games of that ilk, like for example, one in our first play of Arborea, just to pick one example in particular, we were looking at the way the economy worked, and we both love how the economy works in Arborea, you know, full of I generate this and I get something for it, but you it, it's now available for you to do something else. Uh, we were, for the first couple turns, we were doing something wrong with the monsters. And it's like, this is weird. The economy for this is, is so much more blunt and unsatisfying. What? Oh, no, sure enough, it's because we're doing it wrong. Similarly, when playing Federation, the way worker placement works is so interesting and full of, of trade-offs. We're like, we must be doing something wrong with the funding of projects. But no, we've checked a couple times and we're doing it right. It's Yeah, it's 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 a disappointment. In the rest of the design, I, I still happily play Federation. Yes. We're in the middle of a, a game of Federation on Board Game Arena, but I'm not supposed to say that because it's an alpha and we don't talk about those. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not on alpha. It's not there. It's not there. No. Sorry. Uh, there was it doesn't exist. Thing. Okay. I'm going to be burned now. Uh, but it's it's such a strange edge given that everything else works so well. It's, it's yeah, bizarre. It's disappointing. That is Federation. And those are the games we played this week. Now a quick break to pay the bills. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. 
you can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and luxuriating in the one and only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash sowronggames, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash sowronggames. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, I actually like listened. I got an email. They said there was an embargo and I held my tongue for the whole time. All two days? All two days. Yeah. And then and then <laughs> when the embargo was over, I, I, I posted a picture. I, I I'm 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 contributing. Doesn't that mean you're 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 part of the system now? I'm part of the you're system. You're selling out? I think that means I think that makes you the man. All right. So I've been told that I must detest the man. Well, I'm sorry. Oh, I guess we can't oh. be friends. War story, Occupied France. Designed by Dave Neal and David Thompson. And it's going to be David Who? Uh, yeah. Up and comer. Yeah. This is this is strange because I was <laughs> purely on a lark. Uh, just just based on my enthusiasm of the works of David Thompson and of Nikki Valens, I and my my sad, my incredible enthusiasm for the solo work of Nikki Valens in the context of Legacy of Dragonholt and the quality of their writing and the quality of them internalizing storytelling and characterization in, in that kind of format, and because David Thompson is my favorite solo designer, I kind of uh, encouraged them on social media <laughs> to do a project together, and apparently at the time. David Thompson was in the process of reaching out uh, to and collaborating with Dave Neal, who has some experience with the Sherlock Holmes consulting detective uh, reprints and reeditions. And so he uh, he was keeping he was holding his tongue at that time. But uh, sure enough, it looks like there is no genre or no style of game that David Thompson cannot try his hand at. And yeah. I'm yeah, so it's going to be sort of a choose your own adventure war story in occupied France type game, put out by Osprey Games. Very much looking forward to it. So another key game, Mark, Keyside. Now, I went through a bunch of the key games, and he, a lot of them he did co-design with other people. Sebastian Bleasdale? Richard Breeze. Richard Breeze, right. Sebastian Bleasdale, I'm, I apologize. That's the artist. Richard Breeze is teaming up with David Tertzi in this particular game. Interesting. I, yeah, that's why, I'm, I, that's why that's, it's here. That's two very different designers. Yes. Yes. The whole reason why I'm bringing it up. So it's called hmm. Keyside. Co-publication, I don't even, I've never heard of this designer by R&D Games. I think they do, yes, some stuff. Some key games I've heard. Yeah. Next up, Touring Machine was a really interesting game. I still have it. I don't want to get rid of it until I've played it. I, I really dig the whole concept and I just, my brain cannot wrap around it yet. Yes, the, uh, the, the time when I was explaining how to play a Turing Machine, 
Uh, I believe Huey almost punched me. Yeah, we put in earplugs to keep the melting. And it's not as though it's like overly complicated or anything. It's just this weird sort of the way they word things and the way you have to figure stuff out. Anyway. And the disconnect between the input that the game gives you in terms of truth or falsehood and what expectations you might have with respect. Yeah, just the information presentation is novel and that can cause some confusion. And this might help me because... Multiple things. One, it's uh, coming out on BGA soon. Two, if you're interested in this system or what we've just said, they have all of the design notes just came up on Board Game Geek. So if you want to read through how this whole system is a very interesting sort of punch card, you line them all up and it gives you all these different answers for these questions. It's a very fantastic system and very interesting design. If you're interested in that kind of thing, definitely look into it. There is a game called Terra Pyramids. This is the new Michael Kiesling Wolfgang Kramer game. It says uh, 2023, so it should be out very soon. It's being published by Korea Board Games. I looked at a bunch of the pictures. It looked great. I have a new game, Mark. It's called Moby Trick. How fantastic is that? This is is it be... a trick-taking game about yeah. hunting whales? <laughs> it is. All right, nailed it. Designed by Josen Kitno, I think, and it's going to be put out by Hutch games that looks interesting i love trick-taking games and i love silly names like that mantic games puts out a bunch of miniature games they sort of put out their sort of competition to warhammer anyway long story short they're going to be doing a halo tabletop miniatures game by mantic games they have a deal with 343 industries might be interesting they can replicate all the uh, charismatic and dynamic personalities in that universe like um, dude only identified by his rank and, uh, it's deep Mark. This is deep writing right here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So for the 15th time, the Gaia project expansion was announced <laughs> this time it came with some information. So four new factions, two new planet types, no more standard QIC actions, six new advanced techs, Four new round boosters, three new round scoring stuff, a bunch of fact, uh, faction balancing balancing stuff. Like they have, I don't want to say problems in all their games, but when games with uh, highly asymmetrical powers like this gets hyper played, like yeah. Terra Mystic games do, uh, problems will arise. So they have some faction balancing stuff like extra resources, income, some little tokens to put over top parts of the sheet. But that is that. And then finally, some sad news. Brian Charles Ansel was born 11th October 1955. And unfortunately, he just passed away recently on the 30th of December 2023. Uh, Brian was one of the co-founders of Games Workshop. He came from uh, Asgard uh, Miniatures. He was a uh, miniature sculptor. He co-wrote Warhammer. He came over to Games Workshop and uh, opened up their Citadel uh, company. I know you, you were asking about that earlier today. They they actually just invented that company to make miniatures for Games Workshop. You know, their main mm. company is sort of like a, an immediate sister company to make miniatures for them. They sort of, they bought it off of uh, the Steve Jackson, uh, the Games Workshop, because it was very much a role-playing company then, and they immediately stirred it turned it into a heavy miniature wargaming type company. He wrote Warhammer fantasy 
he 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 dabbled in almost everything after that. So big loss to uh, tabletop miniatures game, and that's that. And that's the news and why sometimes it matters. On to our topic, which is an update to our out of print games discussion. So first of all, before we start talking about the specific games that we discussed all those years ago, I'd also just like to point out something. I don't really know what out-of-print means anymore. Because the conventional definitions, uh, really, in in the current publishing era, are are very, very strange. Typically what happens is, there's a short run of a product, and then if it sells out, and becomes out-of-print almost by design then there's going to be another round, and this is often by crowdfunding, though not necessarily. And so a game could theoretically still be, you know, completely out of print, but there's the intention to reprint it in short order. I mean, there are two examples uh, right off the top in terms of people clamoring for the reprint, and that is Imperium the Contention. People show up on the Imperium the Contention for all the time, being like, where's the reprint, where's the reprint, where's the reprint? And the publisher has been saying for the, the same thing for years. Once we're done with our current project, we will reprint the game. And then there's even... The second example isn't even an example of that, but it's kind of sort of in print in the sense that there are copies available, but not domestically, and that's Albedo. I mention this because these are two card games that we that are both in the canon, and consequently some, some listeners in specific have been trying to get copies without success. Is Albedo in print? Kind of. Is Imperium the Contention in print? Not re- kind of like back in the day it was simple like either they're printing more copies yeah or they're well, not yeah well i think it's even more cloudy than that right and and when they do reprint it are they going to call it a second edition do yes. they fix problems do yes they, do, is the game solid enough that they just repent exactly what they did last time yes and, and you know all these different things do they like totally is do the rights get moved to a different company and they put out the game again completely different than it was before yep so many different things it's true and like I was saying, Mark, earlier, I, I didn't think we should re- go back to this because obviously someone's making money off of it. This is all, you know, tongue in cheek. Yeah, we we, we do but not move the needle. We're, we're about to go through all of the games that we talked about that should when be When we reprinted. try, we can maybe move like two or three copies. <laughs> and all but one of the games were actually reprinted. Yeah, it's quite impressive. It's been a good run for, for reprints. And actually, there are a bunch of reprints that I'd just like to flag that we didn't talk about a few years ago that have happened recently that were quite successful, at least in terms of design. I don't know about in terms of sales. I want to talk about things that I brought up back then that I think sure. still apply. Why do we need reprints? I don't think see why we... I, I, I was thinking about this just before we started. people want it. Well, yeah, but so many new games come out. But they want it. Why? I think if I lost everything that I have right now, I would not buy any old games. And that is being honest. Sure. Okay. But not everyone is in our position. No, 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 no. Not everyone's in our position. Even you know, what I mean, just you know, what I mean, it's in in where in the place that I am sure. now. Sure, I really don't think I would I would seek out any particular. Here's games. why I like the fact that that older games are being reprinted. I appreciate the fact that when you approach a given hobby or a given medium, and this isn't unique to board games, this is true of music, this is true of films, this is true of video games, this is true of, 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 of fiction, this is true of nonfiction, whatever. I appreciate that somebody who wants to get into it and appreciate things on a slightly more historical or longitudinal level can go back and experience the things that got us to where we are. Sometimes this is purely uh, like an archaeological perspective. Some, but sometimes this is also because the thing that that game did hasn't really been done better. 
So, I mean, two examples off the top of my head, uh, we'll, we'll circle back to these as, as well, are Hansa Teutonica and El Grande. They were heavily out of print at times, and now they're back. And I don't begrudge anybody for wanting to go that, because it's not like you can point to especially Hansa Teutonica and be like, oh, well, you know, just play the newer thing. It's like, no, but I want to try that thing in particular. It's like, well, you don't have to get into too high a degree of specificity to observe that Hansa Teutonica is very different from a lot of other games of its ilk. Another point I made was that it's falling into the cinema template. And I still think that's true, where some companies are just falling back on reprinting, you know, old favorites and not taking chances with new designs. Honestly, uh, here we're getting more into sort of a market analysis for which I feel woefully unequipped. Uh, I actually wonder how reliable it is uh, for some of these reprints. Like, okay, so let's talk about some of the. I'm just saying, you can simply go to Monopoly. Right. Oh, sure. Where, where you know they can put any name on Monopoly and people will buy it. Oh, and absolutely. So that it's you know sure. free go and and. Uh, I wasn't thinking so much about that. No, <laughs> but no, no. But I mean, but you can take that down into certain degrees, and you know it will be the. So it's much like the unmatched stuff. Like they can print any any sort of uh, you know versus thing that they want, and people will, sure that that's and and, and there and uh, okay, there is a game behind it. That's not a reprint, though. No, that, it's that, not. That's different. That that's pumping systems, true. which is a separate it's issue. True. It's true. 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 My mere point is that a company who decides to go and do the reprints that I will support, that I defend, that I think are good, and that people clamor for, I don't know that it's a guaranteed moneymaker. Like, Lucky Duck reprinting El Grande, that was a financial risk. Because if you look at the kinds of things that are more reliably marketably successful, like, the, the, the market pressures in terms of the popularity of things on BoardGameGeek and crowdfunding don't necessarily lend to publishers going direct to retail with something like an El Grande or something like a Hansa Teutonica. That is a risk. And so I don't know, I'm not willing to adopt that level of cynicism in the context of reprints, certainly for a lot of designs. All right, and then licensing issues uh, continue to be issues. Oh, yeah. Especially, as you can see with our favorite game, uh, Tigers and Euphrates. Yep. One company will get it. They take too long to put out a thing. They lose the license. It goes to somebody else, rinse and repeat goes back and forth, and we don't see it. Yeah. But more on that later. I'm going to talk about that at the end. Okay. So let's talk about games that we wanted to be reprinted. Yes. So first we have Heroescape. It is, in fact, going to get reprinted. Renegade Games has confirmed that it is going to be pre-painted. That is amazing. And it's going to cost $17 million. Start saving now. As, as well it should. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next up, I don't think there's much to say. We both love Heroescape. If you have children... It is a fantastic way to get Or if them. you think like a child. Yeah, or if you think. Which, which people should. You love dolls? This yeah. This is a game for you. Love dolls. It, you, it's, uh, if you love Lego, like you get, yep. some people love building the maps. I love building the maps. Yeah. My game's done after I built the map. And it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, we're, we're going to move these dolls around it for a while. That's fine. Yeah, I'm not like that, but I, I yeah, prefer playing saying, the game. But yeah. yeah, what you need to do is uh, you need the perfect uh, the, the perfect union of someone who likes building the map and someone who more likes actually playing the game. And, and together, they'll have a great time. Agreed. <laughs> Next up is Ginkopolis. Also already reprinted. Yep. Clash of Cultures was sort of reprinted. They had like a second edition that came out. Yeah, it was It was definitely a redevelopment that was not, I would say, a radical redevelopment. It was mostly just fiddling around the edges. It was pretty faithful to the original version. I mean, yeah, there were balance changes and, and things like that. But it's not like they introduced a new mechanism or they in, or they, they, they jettisoned a whole bunch of old ones. Hansa Teutonica, they came out with a big box. So not only did you get the reprint of the game, you also got all the modules 
that went with it. Yes, and a big box of a reasonable stature as well. Andreas Stedding uh, made noises for a while about how the reprint might be rethemed. Specifically, there was a notion of some sort of gangster theme for Hansa Teutonica. That did not materialize, and it was reprinted under the original uh, arguably themeless theme, you know, with the friend of European on the cover about German bankers and such. There's still noise that there that there is going to be. He's still kicking it around. Uh, he was shopping for publishers at some point. I don't know what the current status is of a redeveloped gangster themed Hansa Teutonica. I'd play it. Oh, definitely. I'd, I'd try it too. I've I've enjoyed all of Andreas Stedding's games. So we have we have chaos in the old world, and I guess we'll throw uh, uh, forbidden stars in there because the same sort of problems, right? These are. Uh, Games Workshop themed board games. Yes. And and people very much want them reprinted. They will not be reprinted. Correct. But I think in, in the case of Chaos in the Old World, you have a lot of games that very much sort of mimic yes. the same sort of feel. It, right? was, it was tremendously influential. And yet, uh, I think for good reason, uh, in that it is still independent from and distinct from those designs that it influenced. A lot of people still want the original. Uh, some of them, I think, are motivated by the license, but a lot of people actually just want the the, the, the the differences therein. So if you want to feel what Chaos in the Old World brought to the table, you can play a Blood Rage or Cthulhu Wars. A lot of the games that the original designer put out very much are all built around that same system. Yeah, Eric, Eric Lang revisited those ideas to yeah, a certain extent. We, we, and Cthulhu yeah. Wars was clearly a Chaos in the Old World knockoff. Yeah. So yeah, Rising Sun, all of all of his games, very. Much. I, I'd, I'd say less less Rising Sun, but yeah, Blood Rage more so. Well, Mark Carcassonne City didn't get reprinted. There, I think it's just because of the success of the series. Yeah, I mean, there's tons of new Carcassonne pro- uh, uh, products available. I don't know why they would necessarily revisit some of the original interesting variants when they can just pump out a whole bunch of new, perhaps less interesting variants. I don't know. Uh, Tribune. Yes, very glad Tribune got reprinted. Tribune is one of those awkward situations, though, where uh, this is sometimes, you know, be careful what you wish for, where both editions have their merits and virtues. <laughs> so I, 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 it, it's a little unfortunate and intimidating because uh, I very much like to, I find it very comfort, comforting and comfortable to know what I think the definitive edition is. With Tribune, I'm kind of stuck. <laughs> And then you, the last episode, you talked about a bunch of Civ games that you wanted to see reprinted. Well, specifically, I would like Civilization reprinted. Now, we do have the constituent parts of Mega Civilization in the form of Western Empires and Eastern Empires. And that's fine. And I do like the Mega Civ system. But I would very much like the original Francis Tresham with the Western expansion map to be reprinted somewhere. You can get Gibson Games, a British, uh, mostly a puzzle manufacturer, but they do some games as well, does have a version of the original Francis Tresham civilization. Uh, but uh, the color scheme is garish, the cards are janky, and it is incompatible with the sometimes, many people think, essential Western expansion map. Anyway, that's just me being a a, a curmudgeon. (laughs) Slightly more mainstream, I would very much like Paolo Mori's redevelopment slash reprint of Dogs of War to uh, finally hit the market. We didn't talk about it last time when we discussed this topic. I think it was too soon after Dogs of War. But now Dogs of War is heavily out of print. Like, for real. For really real. For realsies. For realsies. And I would very much like to see what what he does to it. Or even just a straight reprint, for that matter. So there was murmurings of Dark Tower being reprinted when we did the episode, and it totally got it. And yep. and, and we, not we, I, 
<laughs> was griping about it. It's like, oh, you know, it's this digital tower thing in the game itself. <laughs> I played it back then. It wasn't that great, but they did completely redesign it. Yes. You know, with the same sort of feel and mechanisms. Restoration but- games, not infrequently, makes the new version borderline unrecognizable from a mechanical perspective. They keep the overall thematic trappings and it's very evocative of the original. And that, I think, is a good good place for that company to be. Uh, the, similarly, when they reprinted Conspiracy and they made it Conspiracy the Solomon Gambit, that, if anything, I think was their lightest touch in terms of redevelopment. I think it's the, the most similar of the games of theirs that I played when I played the original. Uh, also a game that I, I'm glad they reprinted, but also, again, I, I don't know how much how much traffic it, it generated. So, to be frank, I... I have not heard about it at all. Same thing you, you talked about. Forbidden Stars being redesigned, and I, I've not heard anything about that at all. Yeah, the designer's still working on that, shopping for a publisher, working on some of the ideas. Yeah. Gotcha. Again, not licensed. All right, next I have up, Mark, I have a list of games that did get reprinted. Go for it. Libertalia got reprinted with a new title. Yep. Amun Ray, which we played, which you think is a fantastic new reprint. Yeah, Amun, and there it was a, a case of very subtle differences yielding a lot of dividends. Uh, the Some of the, the, the scoring cards were a little janky in the original, and the player scaling wasn't great. Uh, the player scaling changes, I think, are the most significant module designed by Reiner Knizia. And then it has a whole bunch of other modules designed by other people that are not don't look nearly as appealing, but mostly it's the change to the, to the, uh, the, the, the reward cards that I think is, is getting the most mileage out of the new Amun Ray 20th century edition. Stereo Confluence got a reprint and the expansion. Uh, no, the expansion was only ever available for the new edition. Oh, my, my mistake. Well, you don't like Stereo Confluence, so, uh, put some respect on its name. Palaces of Carrera got reprinted and I purchased it and I read the rules and we never played it. Yeah, that was a weird call. That was one of those ones where I was wondering who was clamoring for it. But who knows? Maybe there was. Maybe there was an audience that I was just unaware of. Zuvadis was a reprint. Yeah. And that was, again, uh, uh, well, to, to, to differentiate from Amun Ray, another Rainer Knizia rede- redesign, uh, Zuvadis was, I think, pretty aggressively redesigned in a number of subtle but very influential ways, much to its benefit. Quo yeah. was pretty dry. Zuvadis, like, that's, that's solid redevelopment work. I don't understand why they keep reprinting this guy's designs. <laughs> I, I don't have any others on this list. So Through the Desert is also being reprinted. It's being reprinted, yep. Uh, Robinson Crusoe, even though it's, you know, you, you, you four le- years late. You even left out a couple of Reiner Knizia games. Uh, they're coming up. Okay. <laughs> uh, Raw was reprinted. Yep. Uh, Hune, it's called Hong Hunang. Hun, what's the new, the re-implementation of Huang. Huang is is a reprint of Yellow and Yangtze. Yellow and Yangtze. Yep. Uh, Tutankhamun was also reprinted by That's 25th right. Century Games. Yep. Uh, also, again, one of those titles that I don't think anyone was asking for. Uh, I don't know, but it, it's 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 a nice filler. I hope it I hope it did some business. We always talked about Ethnos after the fact, and we had wished that it got reprinted, and it did. It did. And I again, don't... be careful what you wish for. Better in some ways, not as good as in others. Agreed. It's called uh, Architect Society. Archeos Society. Archeos Society. Sorry. Same thing with Castles of Burgundy. Careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, that was a case, though, of, whew, that's not even a redevelopment problem. That's just, that got whacked with the expensive stick real hard. Yeah, that got that got uh, kickstarted. <laughs> it got kickstarted in into oblivion. Yes, yeah. exactly. What used to be a humble Alia game that I think at the time uh, retailed for somewhere around 30 bucks. 
Now it's a $200 sprawling monstrosity even before you add on the miniature. Oh, boy. Yeah, I don't... It's it's not our cup of tea, but for those who really like Houses of Burgundy, man, did you get a treat. Yeah, sometimes people point at, you know, the overall excesses of crowdfunding and, like, calm down. This is an exception. <laughs> and then Stefan Feld's city collection. Man, that yes. just... That's all over the place. Sprawling and... Uh, again, some people prefer the original, and so now some of the, uh, like Bruges, for example, is now heavily out of print. People commanding fabulous prices for that, even though arguably it's been reprinted. It's very complicated. <laughs> and then we have a bunch that have been announced. We have Risk 2210, one of my favorite older games that I'm sure I will love when I play it again. Are cough. you sure? No, I'm not. I don't want to play it again. I, don't, <laughs> I want to remember fondly on how fun it was. Uh, Nexus Ops is also said we're going to reprint. We've already talked about El Grande coming out soon. We've already pledged for Calamala's reprint that's coming. It's true. It's true. And with all this, no Tigers and Euphrates and no Richard Hamblin. All right, yes. Yeah, so Although Richard talk- Hamblin is more of a more personal thing. I, I, I will note... That uh, despite the fact that we're never going to get a Richard Hamblin reprint ever again, he of Gunslinger and Magic Realm and Merchant of Venus, uh, Dragons Down by Mr. B Games is uh, very clearly inspired by, very explicitly inspired by Magic Realm. And I'm fascinated. I'm not saying it's going to be a train wreck. Something's happening at great speed. And I definitely want to see what happens. But it's going to be interesting regardless of what happens. So on the subject of Tigers and Euphrates, you know, we have copies, but if I, if I, what would you say if like a, I don't want to say to the extent of Castles of Burgundy, but if a bake-like tile set came out, would you be interested in something like that? Like a little semi-deluxified version here's, of Tigers Here's Euphrates. the thing. I never use that word in my presence. <laughs> I've I've thought about it frequently because I look at I look at envy at people who are able to uh, you know bling out their favorite game to the nth degree, and one of the things that you know it, it's frustrated me at times, but I think it's one of the virtues. You can't really do anything to Tiger's New Frames. No, that's what I'm saying. Just it would be just the bake. I think bake like tiles would be it. That would yeah, be, yeah. exactly because you can't you can't turn everything into a miniature. There are monuments. You can have miniature monument miniatures. There have been wooden versions. There have been plastic versions. I would so, – so there's a limit is what I'm saying. There's an upper limit about what you can do, and so I don't think it could be amenable to the kind of ridiculous excesses of Castles of Burgundy. I'm not saying this is a flaw of the design of Castles of Burgundy. I'm just saying it was amenable to that kind of, of ridiculousness in a way that Tigers and Freddy's isn't. Would I buy a set with Bakelite tiles? Possibly. It would depend on the artwork because I'm very picky about my Tigers and Freddy's tile artwork. I demand that it be aesthetically pleasing and you can easily eyeball the various yeah. kingdom strengths. Dead simple. Yeah. Yes. And uh, everyone has their preference. I have the Pegasus version. I like the Pegasus version. That's my preferred version. So it's entirely possible that a new Bakelite version would come out and I really didn't like the artwork. So I would strongly consider it. That's for sure. Bakelite is nice. All right. And the only one that we can have some back and forth on, and I think the rest of it will just be individual choices, because I saw this come up on other people's lists. Do you think a reprint of the World of Warcraft miniatures game would be something you're interested in? I know we have fond, oh my goodness. We have fond memories of it, but will it really stand up to today's sort of... I, play, know, I played it a couple of years ago. Did, I was you know, I was impressed. Yeah, we we brought it up on... Uh, Vassal. Vassal. We yeah. Played it. Yeah. No, I, I, I thought it was interesting when I saw it there. It's like, yeah, I, I would probably buy that. 
Well, it depends. You know, the the, the golden age of pre-painted miniatures is, is definitely over. They wouldn't be able to sell it pre-painted without marking up the prices considerably, whether know. it was blind buy or not. Hero Heroclix is still going strong. Yeah, but Heroclix minis are considerably smaller and with considerably lower level of detail. Like, if they wanted to do something on that scale, sure, it would be doable. Yeah. But the miniatures were much bigger, and they were gorgeous for prepaints at the time. Arguably, some of the best prepaints ever, certainly up there with the Rackham prepaints. So I don't know that they could ever uh, do it in that way. And since it's a small figure game, typically two to three figures, uh, yeah. like I think three figures is the default warband size. I mean, you kind of have to make them a certain size and, and, and scope. I don't know. That, that's an interesting question. All right. So for games that I would actually like to see reprinted, I'm not sure if I, I really need them reprinted. These are just games that I'd really like to play. <laughs> sure. I don't necessarily have to own these games. Okay. Sure. Sure. I, I gave away my copy of Outlive. I wouldn't mind having that copy back or, you know, having someone nearby really? that had it. I really I, like fond memories of it. It's the one that, I, you know, I I regret most giving away. Do you have one? Uh, Tigers and Euphrates. I think it should Freddy's. be in front. I think Tigers and Euphrates and Through the Desert should be in print forever. Agreed. I got bus on here. I'd like to like. Well, that's bus. just it. Is bus out of print? It was reprinted not too long ago. Oh, it's, I can't. What does out of print mean anymore, Walker? I can't find a copy. Okay. Well, look, if you want, that's the thing. A, a game can be easy to find and yet be out of print, and it can be hard to find and yet arguably in print. In, it's, oh, it's hurting my brain. I, I can't find a copy <laughs> of Fresh Fish, Mark. I want to play Fresh Fish. Oh, yeah. That was very, that, 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 that game I can definitely say is super out of print. <laughs> Isn't Fresh Fish on Yukata? No. Oh. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. I wish it was. Oh, well, there you go. How about Samurai? Samurai is, was also on the list of games that people really wanted to be reprinted. Yeah, it's been through several editions. Which and... I thought, because Board Game Geek was was down, which was odd. The last thing was for a very long time. And I thought for sure that it was already announced that it was getting a reprint, but I couldn't find any information on it. And then, yeah, I was, I was surprised to see that there was nothing. Well, the upcoming Bitewing Games original... Uh, Cascadero and Cas uh, Cascadero and Cascadito. Yes. Uh, Cascadero is is has been adduced to be very inspired by samurai. So gotcha. that's that's a thing at least. Yeah, honestly. Um, although I'm not of your opinion that if I lost my entire collection, I wouldn't want to replace everything. I'm reasonably happy with. The, the the current like reprints seem to be very much in vogue lately. You know, especially I, as a fan of Reiner Knizia, I can hardly complain. Again, I don't know how successful these designs are. I don't really want to speculate. But between Bitewing Games, twenty fifth century games, and the occasional reprint from other companies, uh, I'm very happy that that a lot of these designs are are being able to find their audiences for those that want to go get them. And ultimately, I think the rest has just been changed indelibly, not better or worse necessarily but changed indelibly by crowdfunding and the expectations set therein. Agreed. Well, we'll revisit this topic in another five years. Yes. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information and so much more valuable information besides on SoWrongGames.com. Frequently come up and say, 
Mark, Walker, you speak in indecipherable cant. What on earth are you talking about? What is this thing? And so often I can just say, it's in the glossary, or it's in the dramatis personae. All can be explained there. All wisdom, all answers to all of your life's burning questions. Guaranteed 100% offer void in Canada. Offer void in the United States. Offer void if you've heard this. Will be solved at SoWrongGames.com. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. It's not a cult. (laughs) Take care, everyone. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicken. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.